Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Apex and Book Club podcast. With me is that elder of the city, Jeff Goad. Give me your meat. <laughs> and this week, we are joined by Brendan LaSalle, DCC convention judge extraordinaire, creator of upcoming X-Crawl classics, and author of such classic DCC modules as Hole in the Sky, Neon Knights, and The Web of All Torment. Hello, Brendan. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. Brandon, 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 Brandon. And by the time this drops, we'll both be a year older. We're ex-base daters, yeah. mm-hmm. born on oh, Constitution oh. Day. So there you yeah, go. Hoy and I have the same birthday, September 17th. So, uh, well, you know what? Let's let's pledge at some point when we're on the other side of this, there's got to be some way we can do a combined party. Sure. And, you know, hook, 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 meet your troops, meet up with my troops, and we'll just see whatever magic happens. Just Something crazy will happen. <laughs> That'll definitely be matter anti matter. <laughs> so brendan uh you know uh you're out there but there's a lot we don't know about our favorite creator so what is your secret origin story both as a gamer and a reader of uh, science fiction and fantasy uh sure so um i started gaming in 1977 with the uh, dungeons and dragons blue book um we went and visited some of my uh my mom's friends in california and their oldest was about my age he had uh, discovered D and we played a very a hilarious, like seven year old version of Dungeons and Dragons, like barely understood the rules and the dice, but we're doing it anyway. Had a my introduction to it was so good that I like I I always want to steal it for another adventure at some point, but I can't because I revere my first game that much. But um, I, I I'm one of those guys. I, I've never really since then. I really have never gone more than about six months without playing. Um, I, you know, was super heavy into it. And, um, you know, um, at some point in my, uh, thirties, uh, ran a game for my friends, uh, that was called X crawl. And, uh, they liked it so much that it, it kind of inspired me to try to do something with it. And, uh, that, uh, put me together with, uh, Panda Head Publishing out of Marietta, Georgia, which was the first publisher I ever worked with. And that led to, uh, my eventually working with Goodman Games and going becoming a full time convention person, writer, mm-hmm. staff writer, yada yada yada. All, all right, right. So. and something a lot of people don't know about um, about um, Panda Head Games is that the reason why they have that name is they literally use the heads of pandas to get the mm-hmm. uh, to get the ink. That's what they use for their yeah. ink. They just yeah. shave yeah. up these panda heads. <laughs> there you go. It, I'll tell you what, that was actually hands. my first job with them as an intern, and um, that really prepared me for this evening's subject matter, I think, because that was really... <laughs> Did you know pandas cry? Oh, yeah, they cry. Yeah, you know. no, it takes a lot <laughs> of pandas to get a, better, you know, a, a bottle of ink, right? Four or five, right? So you know, just, just <laughs> it really does. Big ones. Four or five if they're big and you're, and you're a neat you know, cutter. And, uh, I'm neither, so... Uh, so what about uh fiction uh brendan what was what really kind of inspired you or brought you into the the, the imaginative realms that you were you know sure. now and um I, honestly i started with fantasy and i i remember um i fell in love with my <laughs> the first fantasy series i truly fell in love with with the pippi longstocking books oh sure but um yeah. very soon oh i'm crazy about those when i was a kid but went on from there to read um the book of three and then you know the lord of the rings and then um uh, you know, like I sort of, uh, you know, really got into those. And that crossed over into me reading horror because I read 
as a, as a, as a really almost too young of a person, I read the first gunslingers book by um, Stephen King. Sure. And that sort of like, you know, that sort of like got me I'm like, Oh wow, I really like Stephen King. And I saw that one more of his books. My first ever detention was in second grade. And I got it because I should have been playing attention to math class. Instead, I was literally like in a movie. I was reading, um, uh, pet cemetery behind <laughs> my math book <laughs> at, you know, in class busted way too so young. Busted. You're way too you young know? to be in um, pet cemetery in second grade. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That, and it, it, that one, let, let's just say it's indelible mark on me. That's yeah. a scary book when you're, yeah. you know, scary book whatever, however old you are <laughs> yeah. when you're in second grade. Yeah. 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 So loved it. Loved it then. So, and I, I, I you know, I, I feel like I'm, I, you know, I go through periods where I'm a big, big reader and then I don't for a while. And I, so I'm kind of on the, I'm back now, right. sort of like, you know, in a, a big reading phase mm. again, where <laughs> last year there was a lot of TV and, right. you know, gaming, really. Let's uh, fill up my time last mm. year. So I don't know what happened. That was so weird. No, oh, who just who had is? a lot of downtime. You know, people will you know, listen know, to this in hundred years and have no idea yep. what we're talking about. Um, so yeah, people will not be listening <laughs> to this in hundred years, but. <laughs> <laughs> so brendan is there is there any particular you never know you never know it's is being broadcast out into the universe uh brendan are there any uh books that you would really recommend as sources of gaming inspiration whether they be fiction or nonfiction? yeah absolutely the one that i would really want to push that i think everybody if you're into gaming you should read you should read ursula k Le Guin's earth sea stories yeah Those are absolutely fantastic i mean like like to, in my mind, even like o- o- only Far From the Gray Mouser, only, and I don't want to bring up because everyone, I mean, obviously we all love this, but um, of, of the ones that are, are less known, I would say read the Earthsea trilogy. Really, every everything she does is worth a look. Um, and I'm in love with a lot of her uh, different things. But the, the Earthsea trilogy, I, I can't recommend enough. I think they're fantastic. And I, I think um, I think they're underread. Love it. Thank you. All right, so this week we're reading Clive Barker's Books of Blood, Volume 1. What editions is everybody working with? How about you, Brendan? Okay, so um, I got caught wrong-footed by this, and I had to look. I looked all over. I scoured used bookstores and uh, thrift stores in town, and I wound up with this terrible edition. How, how, how young is my edition? There's a little – it's not even a real sticker. It's, a, it's printed on there to look like a sticker, and it says, Hulu. Original film coming soon. So, um, so uh, this is a, if there, if one of you has a younger edition than mine, it has it has the cool art, that cool facade of the, um, the 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 statue of the tortured sinners in hell and the demons. I mean, it's cool, but uh, it's it's not a it's not a cool edition. No. And uh, you know, <laughs> well, we rely on the words then. So, Jeff, what are you reading? I am reading. Um, if Brendan is ashamed of the version he's reading, I'm reading literally the same one, but the ebook version. So it's <laughs> even more low, low grade. And I agree. Like the, the, the art on some of the old paperback versions of this are awesome, especially like the really like homoerotic artwork of the British covers. So mm-hmm. good. But yeah. we have this kind of like boring cover and whatever. Okay. I'm working with the single volume ebook of the first book, and it does have, um, again, it's nothing because you're just looking at my Kindle, but it does have the cover that uh, emulates the original British paperback covers. Because I remember in the 80s, they had those rubber mask covers on the, yeah. with the, like, the little fog and the little like, uh, colored mm-hmm. light bulbs behind the, the little cheap Halloween mask covers, and with mm-hmm. like, the big Stephen King blurb on there, you know. Um, but that is uh, 
that is not the one I'm re- working from. And also, I understand that from Jeremy Harper, he reminded us that the British version was six volumes, and then the uh, American version was only the first three books, and the later three books were given different titles in the States, and were not officially books of blood here in the States. So there you go. There you go. Uh, so I neglected to look up a high Gaxian word, but Brendan, I understand you have two candidates this week for strange and memorable words. I do. I, I if I had to pick one, I'm going to take a, a book, one of the ones out of this that um, I, I saw it and I was like, "What?" It's a volta face. Okay, so volta face is an act of turning around so as to face the opposite direction. Um, I, I believe it's a stage direction that you would get from a uh, from a really competent director who knew what he was talking about. <laughs> but volta face is really good. <laughs> um, my other one was uh, cyclorama, which uh, I didn't actually look up. Oh, oh, yeah. real quick. That's the sweep oh, on yeah, the back, of, back of a stage. Ex- yeah. Exactly. And in, in the theater world, they're just called a psych. Yeah. Ah, see, right. there you go. Right, and if you're using green screen photography for a film and video, it's basically smooth sweeps. You don't get that hard line between the floor and the background. Huh. So there you go, cyclorama. Oh, cool. Both great words. Yeah. And it's telling the folks from the same story, right? That's the one that. Uh, in- yes, that's my favorite one out of these. Um, uh, Sex, death, and, and starshine. There you go. Yeah. So um, here's something you. So. Uh, I mean, are we talking about yes. this? Oh, yeah. This is a good, right start, good starting point. Absolutely. So, yes, we are now in the library. Make yourself uh, comfortable. Pull up a big comfy yeah, seat. You know, sit by the fireplace. Right. And share with us your, your thoughts on Books of Blood, Volume 1. Oh, okay. Well, Books of Blood, Volume 1. Obviously, these are fantastic stories. There are some of them, I, I you know, it's like anything. Some of them I like better than others. But yeah, like I was just saying, um, Sex, Death, and Starshine is one of my absolute favorites. Um, I'm actually... Uh, I, my minor from my, my college minor is actually in history of theater. And um, I am a bit like I've, I've only I've acted in a few productions, but mostly I'm just kind of a theater geek and a big Shakespeare geek. So this um, this that story in particular with the idea of this hack actress who just can't do, you know, who, who literally can't do anything with the um, Shakespeare thing. Her parts being taken over by a ghost and like that, that you know, that ghosts take over the entire theater because this theater means so much more to them than just a place to sell tickets. Um, it, it, I found it absolutely appealing. Um, there is some deep horror in this. There are some parts of this that are like, what the, you know? Um, and uh, I, I love those very much. And I think that it's, um, you know, I think one of the things you have to address when you're talking about Clive Barker is like horror and sexuality. Indeed, absolutely. Um, like coming to, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I also really loved this story. Sex, Death, and Starshine was a ton of fun. I'm also a huge fan of the 1970s Vincent Price AIP horror films, The Abominable Dr. Fives, Theater Mm -hmm. of Blood, and I fully saw Vincent Price playing Litchfield in this. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I also thought that the way Clive Barker wrote this story, you could tell he was just having so much fun mm-hmm. eviscerating the theater world, you know, and like there's this great this great line where he says that was the fatal flaw of this profession. Actors. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I also loved that Clive Barker at a certain point in this story is talking about how bad the production is. And I can tell that as a writer, he is now channeling his like inner theater critic and he's like writing his own bad review of this play that he's like making up. (laughs) And this line where he says, 
It was a historic. It was a performance heroic in its ineptitude, oh. <laughs> reducing the delicate characterization Galloway had been at pains to create to a single note whine. This viola <laughs> was soap opera pap, less <laughs> less human than the hedges, and about as green. And yeah. Brendan is showing us that he's got the same passage highlighted. Right. What I really liked also was that this support story, I mean, he's poking fun at the theater world, which he was a member of for 10 years, I guess, at, at that point. He had been a, a director as well. Um, I like that phrase, you know, he's talking about the actors, the problem with actors. I remember when I was briefly working in the film, film we joke around, we call that actors, we call them camera meat. But... <laughs> but um but we know that the show wouldn't exist without them so um but i like the um that he still had a lot of empathy like you know the most hateful character is this like bean counter uh bean counter uh accountant this guy hammersmith but then we find out he's a failed playwright and the only reason Mm -hmm. he's still in the he can't get away from the theater universe even though he likes likes to say oh you know this doesn't make any sense i'm gonna sell the theater Mm -hmm. whatever um and then when the the revenant uh, Calloway comes back and snaps his neck, he never finds out that that you know Hammersmith was actually you know a, you know a poet at heart. And so, yeah. <laughs> um, so I really appreciate that. And also his empathy for the um, the usher who had grown up as a young girl from a you know she, uh, yeah the, the, actually the box the box office lady she had been there since yeah. she was fifteen Tallulah. right. Yeah. So he has a lot who, of who, who yeah. seamlessly crosses over. Right. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, it doesn't hurt anymore, right? She's undead. Nothing hurts anymore. It's great. Yeah. You know? yeah. And Brendan, I agree with you about the way uh the way that Barker uses his prose to communicate things. There was this great moment in the very first story, The Book of Blood, which for those of you who are listening, the very first story is almost kind of that um interstitial. Um, framing device thing that you see in anthology horror uh, horror TV series and horror movies where it's like it's like the Crypt Keeper or it's like Debbie Harry as the witch in like the Tales from the Dark Side movie. You know, we've got this like we've got this story that kind of sets up like why we have all of these like various stories that follow it. But um, there's this line in it that I loved so much where um, where Dr. Mary Florescu is sitting here tapping her finger and as she's tapping her finger, um, Clive Barker tells us that sometimes the wedding ring on her finger fits and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Depends on the day. But today, the thing, the wedding ring was it was so loose, it was about to fall off her finger. So <laughs> yeah. it's like Clive Barker doesn't need to say, like, she's horny for that dude yeah. mm-hmm. and she is DTF. <laughs> He's yep. just talking about how the wedding ring just doesn't seem to fit nope. today. And I <laughs> loved that. Yeah, we have and everyone gets that. I think like it, it's it's such a, a such a small moment that then makes the whole characterization become so real and so vivid in your head in, in an instant. You know, I love it's absolutely fantastic. Hoy, what are your thoughts overall about the Books of Blood? Um, I really liked it. I, and I hadn't read any Barker recently. And the last thing I w- probably read was uh, The Great and Secret Show back in the 90s, uh, which is a really large, epic novel. And so it's interesting to see the, his beginnings, which are these smaller, much more intimate stories, even though there's epic stuff happening in a couple of them. Um, and I remember sliding off of these stories a bit when I tried to read them in the late 80s and early 90s. And, and now I'm looking at them, I'm, I'm kind of wondering why. I think it must have just been the maturity because the, t- the prose is not difficult. I think it was just things I wasn't ready to think about or deal with yet. You know, that convergence between the eroticism and the horror and, the, and uh, you know, that the horror is beautiful and that the eroticism will lead people down to dark places or whatever. Um, yeah. 
So I think that uh, those were things I just wasn't ready to twig on. I was just ready for, you know, regular splatterpunk, which, you know, Clyde Barker sometimes associated with, but he's clearly not of that ilk. Or, you know, Stephen King, Stephen King, H.P. Lovecraft, all those things are, you know, more grounded in a sort of 80s American experience or a new, the New England experience that, you know, Brendan and I both share. Um, sure. yeah. So I just think I wasn't quite ready. Uh, but now reading this, I was like, oh, you know, I, I really appreciated a lot of what was going on here. Um, the humor in the Yattering Jack, we talked about that a lot in the book club. Um, here's mm-hmm. this master magician who's living in this, you know, gray British terrace house. <laughs> <laughs> right, but he's essentially a master musician. It's incredibly funny story, but also yeah. when you think about it, the layer under it, it's quite dark. Um, the uh, in the hills of cities, which is truly epic. Um, Midnight meat train will also disturb me. They're, they're all, you know, they're all are approaching different experiences. But what I think is a common thread is that people are almost willing the horror to them, right? In these stories, right? They're 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 drawn to it. Um, these are acts of will. I mean, the, uh, Jack is a master musician. He's, he's a ma- magician. He's drawing himself into this power. The, uh, the boy who kills himself and, so that he can have immortality in the form of this pig god demon in the pig blood blues. He's willing himself. Uh, obviously, Dr. Florescu, she's willing this. So it's all acts of human will. Uh, I think it's the common thread or muscle fascia that is you know, linking all these stories together. So that's interesting. Yeah. And it's also very like person first and person centered. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about the human experience of the horror. It is not about the horror itself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like one of the ways that I think about this is the Hellraiser movies, for example. Hellraiser and Hell, Hellbound Hellraiser 2 are two of my favorite films. Mm-hmm. I love them. There is not a single thing wrong with either of those two films. And the rest of the Hellraiser movies are bad. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think a big reason behind that is for the first two movies, Julia is our villain and the Cenobites are her tool. But then once Pinhead becomes so iconic, Pinhead becomes like kind of the main character of the movies moving forward. And it became about the monsters yeah. and not about the person at the center of it. And I feel like when we're reading a Clive Barker story, we are we are with these people who feel very real and very complex and have... Um, have sexuality, but also in a way that feels real and relatable Mm -hmm. and not in like a kind of a pulpy sexuality. Like we're just reading, um, and this is a comparable period of time, Michael Shea's Nift the Lean, which was published around the same time. And he's like writing about big guava breasts. And like when you say (laughs) big guava breasts, like there's nothing sexy about that description. Nobody is like aroused by guava. Right, right. But but the way that like Clive Barker is casually talking about the way that like the 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 guy in the attic is like only wearing underwear as Mm -hmm. a way of like kind of seducing her. And he's like casually like fondling himself while he's like doing his stuff. There is something very erotically charged about the way that he writes it, both in its frankness, but also in the sense that like these are things that like we can kind of relate to and feel rather than just like oh, yeah. kind of pulpy descriptions of bodies. Right. Or even the, the scene between um uh Judd and and um Mitch. Is it Mitch? In uh in I think it's Mick. 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 Is it yeah, Mick, or is it Mick, Mitch? Mick in the Hills um, of Cities. So, you know, these are um uh gay husband and wife on their uh husband and husband. Uh on their honeymoon essentially in Yugoslavia but they're finding out that they really almost have nothing in common except yeah. this this one but they're able to just at least transcend that moment when they're 
you know, their, their desire, their, you know, and it's really, uh, you know, I, I find them so relatable mm-hmm. to have that moment when you're on a vacation with someone and you realize, oh my God, this is not going to work out. Yeah. But you're you're there. I mean, they're in Yugoslavia, so they're going to like hold them together until they get home and just like that. That there's that that moment with them driving to the car and the ones droning on about politics yeah. and and it's like ugh, yeah. like I, I I remember thinking to myself, yeah, that's that feels very much like you know on the money, you know. Well, and then also in um, in sex, what is it? Sex, death, and starshine. There's for, first we're introduced to the character of Diane, the soap opera star, as she's filleting the director Terry, um, and then and later in the story we also have another fellatio scene. But in that one, like Terry's receiving the best blowjob he's ever received his entire life, but then he starts to realize like, oh, she's not coming up for air. And it suddenly dawns on him that she's dead. And then like when that happens, like he starts to get flaccid. And like that, I also thought was just like a really cool use of sexuality as a way of driving the horror Mm -hmm. forward. Yeah. Yeah. I I had to say something as a game designer about that section there. Okay. So when um, the first ghost shows up in um, sex death, so Mr. Litchfield shows up and then um, his uh, uh, Constantina, like they are able to pass as humans until they don't want to pass as human. And I I think it's really telling that um, Diane can't pass as a ghost. And she's like, I'm just no good at this. (laughs) I, I love that part of the rules of the undead in this particular story is that if you're a ghost, if you can act well enough, you can get over. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, you have to pretend to be breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So from a from a gamer, from a game designer perspective, I could totally see like someone coming up with some rules like, you know, you can slip in there as a ghost and interact with humans, but you gotta make your check. And if you fail it, they're gonna know something's up. Yeah. And if you really fail it, like Diane here, they're gonna know that you're dead. <laughs> and uh I, I I think that's a you know, I I always look, you know, the, you know, game designer, it's uh, to me the mechanics of how these how the uh, the the supernatural elements of these stories actually work is very important to me, and I love that in particular in this one. You know, and uh, you know, I think that's a really you know a, a beautiful sort of like like he's really thought about being a ghost in this particular world. What that would be like, I think it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. One of the stories that, or actually, kind of the only story that we haven't really mentioned much. I guess I haven't talked much about Midnight Meat Train either, but we really yeah. haven't. I don't even we've even mentioned Pig Blood Blues yet. So I think it's worth exploring Pig Blood Blues for a moment here. This story I thought was really cool. Um, it was also, there's a lot of stuff going on here too yeah. that I feel like would be interesting to kind of try to unpack. Yeah. Um, but for one thing, it seems like it's Clive Barker exploring the hell that was these kind of uh, juvenile detention centers for young men. Um, and we know historically from the things that we know now in 2021 is these kinds of institutes, um, these kinds of institutions, these kinds of facilities usually were just like breeding grounds for abuse, mm-hmm. physical, sexual abuse, really horrific things happened here. But also at the same time, while Clyde Barker seems to be exploring that, he also seems to be kind of fetishizing it a little bit and giving it a bit of like a homoerotic, like fantasy element Boy, to it as well. Mm-hmm. And then it gets real complicated, too, in the character of Lacey. Mm -hmm. So here we've got this young boy who's being described as like prepubescent looking. And we've got our retired 
police officer who's now working security for this place who has taken a real liking to this boy. And he even specifically points out that perhaps the his liking he's taken to this boy might not be so innocent. And then even the way that Clive Barker describes this boy later, they say it was Tommy Lacey, of course, naked as the day he was born, his body as pink and as hairless as one of her pharaoh. So it's like, we also have this like gross, right. like kind of pedophilic, right. like, yeah, like fantasy it. aspect right. of it. That's also like pretty icky right. and like not great, not a little weird to read. Right. I mean, he's mentioned yeah. as being unclean even from the beginning before anything is even mentioned, like when he's gotten getting kicked on the ground and he's already mm-hmm. almost chosen. I mean, he's literally is chosen to be yeah. this victim, but he also takes it on. He's almost willing to do it, you know, other than the letter, you know, it's in- inescapable. He's like this receptacle for the hatred, the desire, you know, all that. It's, it's you inevitable. Know, you know, mm-hmm. it's so and intertwined. When the new authority. Yeah. Yeah. And when the new authority figure shows up, he doesn't go, Hey, they're going to sacrifice me to this pig. That's been possessed by a dead guy that used to live here. Any, any help, you know, like he, yeah. you know, like he, he's, he's literally hiding that from someone who might be willing to help. And that's really interesting. I think, you know, like what, what does that mean that he's not, he, he doesn't cry for help no. in the, in the early parts of it. Also, I'm glad you brought up the letter, Hoy, because yeah. that letter cracked me yeah. up. The letter says, Mama, they fed me to the pig. Don't believe them if they said I never loved you or that they said I ran away. I never did. They fed me to the pig. I love you, Tommy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't have any tattoos. I kind of want to get a tattoo of that letter. <laughs> yeah. But also... You know, one of the things we are chatting about in the patron book club that we do before these is one of our one of the members of the patron book club, Jeremy Harper, was having some of the some problems with um, the logic behind some of these stories. And I also will acknowledge that as much as I really enjoyed reading these stories and this one in particular, I also really enjoyed. I did also feel like there were some 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 logic problems here. And one of them was that here we have this detective who was on the force for, I think, like 20 years, left because of an injury and is now like, I think, like a like a security guard here. And immediately he just like smells this horrible smell coming from the farm. But it's like if there's anything I know from the few conversations I've had with retired police officers or people who've been in the force for a long time, they will tell you that they've all encountered the smell of death. And they will tell you that once you know what that smell smells like, you will never mistake it for anything Mm -hmm. else ever Mm -hmm. again. So here's Redmond showing up. He knows there's a weird smell coming from the farm. He knows there's a kid missing. I have a hard time believing that he wouldn't immediately make that connection. But despite that, I still really enjoyed the story. If I can set that aside and just experience it, I still had a lot of fun with it. But I will acknowledge that that was there. I can see that, but I can also see that this is the... Uh, that whole farm is the quintessential bad place, the bad spot. And so that things are already starting to break down. Like people's psyches, the border between the living and the dead, all these things are already breaking down. So it's, again, now it's sapping the will, right? And this is like already starting to question like what's going on. And, but without the impetus or even the will to like leave the place, like, you know, uh, and um, everybody seems completely enervated there, which is very, you know, it's this thing that just like the, you know, maybe just that one character who willed himself to become this, you know, undead pig god. Um, but 
Um, there was also a tie back to sort of the eroticism. Wasn't the director there? So she was also very attracted to the boy who had killed himself also. And, you know, essentially. Well, uh, yeah, she was she and the 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 but I believe he was 17, which she like really wanted you to know. Right. right. And <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't think she was just attracted to her. I think they were I having a sexual but I'm saying relationship. It's kind of like yeah. what Florescu in the first story was sort of leading up to with the, you know. Yes. You know, so. And what's also interesting is like Dr. Florescu, she like we know that the guy who's upstairs 20 years old, but even she's describing him as a boy. Yeah. So it is interesting that there is this like um, infantilizing of these like sexual male objects. Mm-hmm. Tra- taking this over toward a more gaming side of the conversation, during our patron book club, we were talking about how one thing in particular felt very Dungeon Crawl Classics and specifically very Brendan LaSalle. And I'm curious, Brendan, what do you think we what it what what do you think it is from this that that for us felt very you? Okay, I kind of hope that it is the relationship between the wizard and the, the demon in uh, the Addering and Jack, but I don't know if it's not, if I'm, if I'm wrong about that, what would it, what would it, uh, the whole thing or just this story? Cause um, it's, it's, it's for us, it was specifically the monsters in the hills, city. the cities, the oh, yeah, idea, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> this like conglomeration of like thousands, thousands of, of humans yeah. becoming one giant sentient creature <laughs> That's stomping around and even like its feet, like because it's been stomping around, those are just corpses now. And some people are like going crazy and like wanting to join it and are like jumping onto it so they can become a part of it. That felt very DCC and it also felt like something I would fully see in one of your modules. Thanks, man. There you go. And I like (laughs) that it's done in by a bad hip, which is like, (laughs) essentially. (laughs) Now, let me ask you this. Do you think in that story, okay, when I I first read that, I, you know, like I, I try not to read like my own political things into these things. But do you think that Clive Barker was using those two, the, the, the two opposing giants as uh, a, a metaphor for communism? I think uh, actually Rick Byrne was mentioning this, who was in the group, uh, that in a way, yes, because this was he was making a referral to um, Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan from the 1600s, which was a, a political theory, but essentially how the kingdom... Uh, the nation state is made of all these people and that they don't have an independent existence. They're conglomerated into this larger thing. So communism could work just as well. And this is in Yugoslavia just before it has become, you know, it's still during the at sort of the tail end of the Cold War. So I think you're absolutely yeah. there. I think that's absolutely part of it. Um, yeah. Or just any kind of like us versus them situation because it's these two cities on, the, on either side of the valley, right? And they normally get along, but at the lead up to this 10-year ritual, they stop talking to each other and they all... Get into yeah. the thing and they start strapping have themselves get, into have the to get a character. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. But I, I kind of love that. I love that the the they have to go through that phase of depersonalization in order to form into these two opposing giants and go against each other. You can't be in the one giant, you can't be in the hip looking at the other hip and going, Oh, hey Mike. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> what are we doing after the fight? Are we going for drinks nope. or okay, we'll see. You know, you can't do that. You know, I, I love that kind of that intentional uh, self-dehumanization. I think it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At that point, we become like a skin cell or we become yeah. like a white blood cell. Like mm-hmm. we become a a, a, a a building block of this right. larger. And entity. it becomes so weirdly attractive that these two characters who have nothing to do with this are kind of drawn for it. Right. So Judd is the guy who's like yeah. the, 
right-wing Tory political theorist. And when they first start seeing all those rivers of blood running downhill, like makes intense, like, let's get out of here. And the judge is like, I have to see, we have to see, right? We have to witness this thing, right? And at the end, Judd is the one who dies first, but then Mick is ecstatically, he has to join this thing. Then he has no comprehension of what it is. You know, he has nothing to do with it, but he has yeah. to join it, right? Just the way that we get yeah. swept up into political or social movements or moments in history. Exactly. <laughs> and like, I, th- I think you get the idea that the first one, the one who was killed by it, would, would have known better. Be like, well, we're not joining that thing. I know the history. Yeah. You know what I mean? At least on a metaphorical level. Right. Where the other guy is like, woo, yeah. sign me up, you know? And, uh, yeah. Yeah. It is, it's kind of amazing. It's, um, I don't know, that, that, that's the story. I had never, I, a lot of these stories I had read before, you know, individually. I, I've always skipped around in the books of blood, but I had never read this one before. And um, I, it left a real impression on me. Um, and uh, I don't know, it was really just, it, it showed me something different in Clyde Barker, that willingness to kind of like go and use sort of like an extended metaphor in order to uh, tell that kind of story, but still have it be horrific, still have it have all of the earmarks of a really cool Clyde Barker thing. It's still sexy. Yep. You know what yep. I'm saying? I mean, that like, scene you, is incredibly you, you sexy when they're, you know, they yeah. go into the field, you know. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's still, you know. Also, one thing I'm really interested about is knowing that this is becoming a Hulu series. How the fuck are they going to do this episode? <laughs> I mean... Well, okay, CGI, you know what I mean? They could literally have one guy as every body in there, like, ah, you know. Um, but I, 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 I've got high hopes these days, you know what I mean? I think that, yeah. uh, you know, 20 years ago, it would have been a shadow, and then, like, you would have seen a bunch of butts hanging up one side, and a bunch of <laughs> like, ah, you know? But, like, now, I mean, because what, what I'm interested from, from, again, gamer perspective, I want to know about the interior. Apparently, yeah. they could, they actually have a circulatory system inside these giants where they can pass food up yep. to people, take waste out from people, and even remove dead bodies. Right. I want to see what that looks like in the interior yep. of yep. this. Yeah. And they pick all yeah. these people for different roles. Like, this person is this brawny person, they become, like, the feet or, you know, the, the souls yeah. of the feet. No, yeah. It's really, yeah. yeah, you know, tell that story. Right, right. Now, Brendan, when you're looking at potentially gamifying this collection of stories, do you feel like there is a system that could work to tell any of these kinds of stories? Or do you feel like you have to tailor the system to each of these stories individually? I think... Uh, okay, see, here's the thing. This is gets complicated. Let's say you were going to do this for really good role players who were going to go with it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Let's take the, the most, uh, the most, the simplest one, which, which uh, if you were going to gamify, would be Midnight Meat Train. Mm-hmm. You fall sure. asleep in the train, yeah. you wake up, and suddenly this thing's going on. You know, if you had a player who was willing to act horrified and not just become like Mike Commando, who's like, well, I'm going to start breaking apart the seats and making them into nunchucks. You know what I mean? Like, actually <laughs> could play terrified, you know, then yeah. you could do this with absolutely any system that had a decent thing for, for combat and, and, you know, could, could tell that fighting story with it and such. But I mean, think about like young gamers, new gamers, a lot of people just, they don't like to be scared. Mm. They don't like their characters to play scared, which I love. I love playing somebody who's terrified, you know, but like if you, you might have to create something specific, but you could do it with other systems. I would basically say, you know, you're on the midnight B train, you know, you, you go around there, you see at heart, everyone makes a willpower save. I'm thinking, of course, DCC, because that's my native thought language these days. But um, everyone makes a saving throw, and if you fail, then your character is always looking for a way out to try to run out of there, and you can only fight if you're cornered, and if you do other than that, 
big penalties because you're going against your body's instincts. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think you could tailor the encounters through a, a basic system like DCC. I don't think you have to get into, you know, I, I have, when I was like, when I was young, I was in love with systems that like specifically call of Cthulhu and things that worked in sanity. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't, and I don't you were like, also really into world of darkness. I was, I was a big world of darkness guy for a while. And um, do you feel like this is this, this would be better suited for call of Cthulhu or world of darkness? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I think this would be better suited for Call of Cthulhu, frankly, mm. unless you um, were going to actually uh, do the, um, if you wanted to do sex, death, and starshine and actually have the people portraying the ghost actors and the mission is is to infiltrate the theater and take over the key positions and then put on the thing on your way to becoming the traveling troop, then I'm calling for Wraith. Mm-hmm. Other than nice. that, yeah. uh, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Other than that, I would do it with uh, with Cthulhu. Yeah. And frankly, other than that, uh, these days, I would do it with DCC. Sure. You know, and, I mean, I definitely feel that the last story feels very DCC in the hills of the cities, right? You know, like these colossi yeah. feel very DCC because it's just like that weird, yeah. just gonzo enough. And Midnight Meat Train could definitely be... Um, Urban, modern urban horror, but I could see it just as easily transported to a more traditional sword and sorcery fantasy setting. Um, you know, maybe it's a city that, I mean, what I probably would do is make it the city that's the character's home base. So not that they're wandering into the city that's like that. They've been there whole time and you just kind of drop little hints and then uh, like about halfway through the campaign, you sort of like, yeah, you yeah, know, like yeah. you said, oh, and uh, one of their uh, friends uh, has uh, disappeared or, you know, they fell asleep and yeah. where's the groom, you know, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the groomsman. Also, Hoy, I forget if this was you who brought this up or if it was Rick or if you two were just yes-anding yourself until you got here. But I also loved when you were bringing up that idea, but then it went even further and said that once you stopped the sacrifices from happening, y'all discovered that the sacrifices had a purpose and the purpose was preventing the city from becoming this like in the hills, the cities, like human monster <laughs> right. thing. Was, so you actually potentially trigger something much right. worse. The, the much worse yeah. was both of us, but that specific thing was definitely Rick. And that was really inspired, you know? So, Fully. gotcha. but yeah, now, I mean, Hoy, if, if, yeah, go ahead. if you were running this game, would you allow one of the outcomes for the characters to become the new butcher? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, right. nice. with, with DCC, it's obvious because you have corruption and stuff like that. And obviously you have, yeah. um, you know, in the old days with, with Call of Cthulhu, you know, once they lost all their sand, they would be, zero, you know, become NPCs. But I think people are more willing to, again, with the proper safety tools and discussions, people are more willing to let people play that evil cultist now in, a, a, you know, a Call of Cthulhu or other trad horror game. And Jeremy was very strongly pushing for... Uh, unknown armies as the best rule set that encompasses the sort of Clive Barker experience. I haven't played it myself, but you know, I played. Yeah. Um, I know that's the modern it's, update of it also, but it, uh, unknown armies is a good kind of basic system. Um, and it does have some neat things in there for, for horror and really for investigation. Um, but, um, yeah, actually for, for a story game like this, yeah, I think it'd be, a, that would actually be a good match. Now that I give it a, a moment's thought. Yeah. yeah. I think it'd be cool. Yeah. Now, Brendan, I would like to ask a similar question to you that you asked Ahoy. Sure. If you were doing a convention game of In the Hills, the Cities, and it was not a zero-level funnel, would you allow for people to, um, if they fail a will save, have to be have to want to join the 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 monster, the entity? I absolutely would, but I wouldn't need to because someone would join on their own. now what i would do at that point is i would give them a role every round to have some sway over what the creature does so they still have some agencies so they're not just a thigh bone they can actually be like 
you know what? We're going in for a grab. You know what I mean? And I'd want to be able to give them. Because, I mean, if you think about it, you are a tiny little cell of this huge, big thing. There's got to be. I mean, unless there's literally somebody who's the brain, who's inside, like, rat tattooing the whole thing, you know what I'm saying? Like, unless you're having that, everyone has got a little bit of the decisions, even if it's just, like, does the hand grab this part or this part or this part or do I just slam it or or whatever it happens to be? So I would try to give them some tiny bit of a a chance of agency every round to be a part of the – or even just to represent the part of the creature's decision – the collective creatures decision making that allows it to take whatever action happens right, to take right. place that round. And, and it is worth noting that in this particular story, everything goes wrong because under the normal circumstances, the thing wasn't supposed to collapse on itself and the entire city wasn't oh, no. supposed to die. Yeah. And so there may be perfectly good reason why I say, hey, you know, there's this other horrible threat coming over the horizon. Yeah. And the only yeah. way to survive it is to do this thing that may, you know, and you come upon this town and they say, well, we can, so- you know, do this thing, and the players are like, this is kind of unpalatable, but this might be the only thing that will stop this other, even greater horror, is by becoming yeah. this, you know, Voltroning into this, you know, <laughs> you know flesh and rope creature. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> for, for however long that adventure you know takes. I love that. You know? it, I'll tell you what, the idea of collective beings allows for so many interesting scenarios, you know? Like, in my mind, when I was reading this, I, I started writing my version of this which would be where i would have somebody on one side and somebody on the other side be in love like they would go up for a punch and the one would like escape and join the other side and be like you know like slithering into the heart it's like no no i can't be without you you can't be here We're you know like it's such a neat you know i don't know it really is and i i, I have used collective organism things before as monsters but they've always been undead or had some other reason why they would act as a, a single thing. I do love this. Right, you know? this is um, civic pride, right? This is like people are proud to be doing this. this is like the Mardi yeah. Gras floats, or like the, uh, <laughs> you know, right? Also, I can see PCs wanting to join into the giant that they're trying to take down, so that they can then try to mess things up from within. Yeah. But oh, then I think yeah. if that's what you're gonna do, I also think there's a chance that the body's gonna reject you mm-hmm. as like a as like a as like a parasite or a virus right. or something yeah. that it realizes needs right. to get, get rid of or you. Or just make yeah. them feel really bad and have it actually happen like in the story where the thing just starts falling apart and then they realize that they just killed like 30,000 innocent people (laughs) (laughs) inside one of them there's one guy each one he's the enforcer he plays the part of the white blood cells and anybody who gets in there he will climb over and around to get to them (laughs) and then it's a brawl in the middle of this thing Mm, give me that (laughs) (laughs) now Brendan did you come across anything that you were reading that you're just like oh I'm definitely stealing this like this is going right into a future game um the one that i was the most like sucked into um was uh the yattering and jack mm-hmm. uh, as far as like something i i love the idea of this tricky magician who's just waiting this demon out and he's ignoring it and the, he just acted dumb and the demon's like losing his mind like i ate your cats why aren't you scared you know what i mean and, like <laughs> i i love that and i love the idea of this kind of inept demon who's been given really actually very bad orders. All Beazlebub had to do was give this guy a breakdown of what, like, if you think about it, this is a story about the failure of Hell's chain of command. Yep. You know what I mean? <laughs> if Beazlebub had just been like, okay, look, he comes from a long line of wizards, watch for some trickiness. He could have gone in there and, and acted with some subtlety instead of just going for the next, you know, disgusting thing. And like, 
the the I, I love him taking over the turkey. Yeah, both comedic and horrible. Yeah, yeah, comedic and horrible. That to me is a perfect kind of a gaming moment where you're yeah. having to fight this disgusting thing that's come to life and taking. It was very like Eraserhead meets Poultry Guys. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, not a lot of people know Poultry Guys. Well, I'm here. <laughs> deep, <laughs> cut. deep cut. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. So to me, that was the one I. And also, you know, Clive Barker is does a really good monster point of view. A lot of horror authors try to, and they fail to different degrees, or they succeed to different degrees. But I love, I, get, I always get excited when I get to a chapter or to a, um, a, a section, a paragraph, when the, the point of view character flips, and now you're looking through the eyes of one of the creatures or the monsters. Like, I just get, I just get, that gets me pumped, because I think that, Clyde Barker does an exceptional job of that. And th- I love the yattering. I just love him as a character. <laughs> right. And I think that's so this, this terrible demon that just can't, he just can't get it together. Right. And he pays the price in the end, but at what cost to Jack, right. you know, and this is uh, almost like a Bugs Bunny and the yattering is almost like Daffy Duck, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. He's just, it's ridiculous. Ooh, yeah. Kind of a, you can just see him. You know, yeah, doing the Daffy Duck dance, <laughs> mad about whatever, just sputtering in anger <laughs> when his latest thing. I mean, he was in there for months and months. Yeah. He tried everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, I'll, I'll tell you, as as somebody who, you know, the first time I'm in my house, I'm like, oh, my God, somebody, one of my cats. Well, guess we're moving. <laughs> to see you. Well, and then he gets two more cats. And then those are also both killed. I know. <laughs> That's hole right there. And the third one, he explodes like a grenade. And he yeah. comes home and he's like, damn, dogs. <laughs> I know, right? But it, it's so it's it's so funny to me that, like, like I said, if, if all Beazabub had to do was be like, look, this one's real tricky. He he literally left this poor yattering, wow. uh, out, hung him up to dry. Right. And Jack runs rings around him, and uh, he didn't get the four one one. All that monster needed was the four one one, and he could have handled. That's this. why hell is hell, because right? even the devil is a prisoner in hell. So <laughs> that's why hell is hell. Yeah. And then I love that as soon as he does have control over the demon, he's just like, "Well, better head on into the house and start tidying up." <laughs> 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 this ain't no union job. Right. Snap to it, right. pal. <laughs> he's, got, he's got all the time in the world he's, now, you know. <laughs> he's cleaning up bits of turkey off the wall. Yep, yep. You know, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great story. It's a funny story, and um, I love that character. Yep. And that's, uh, I think, one yeah. thing I was not expecting from Clive Barker is is humor. I, you know, eroticism, terror, mm-hmm. all these other things. But that was one thing I had never associated with Clive Barker was just straight up humor. Same. The Yattering and Jack surprised me for exactly those reasons. The 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 um the hum- like the, the I wasn't expecting something to be so just straight up goofy. And then in the hills, the cities also just really surprised me because I wasn't expecting monsters of that size and caliber in yeah. Barker either. Because I kind of associate him more with like a very kind of personal yeah. uh, body horror style of horror. Oh, so yeah. it's interesting to also see like a crazy like gore mech. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think you could argue the giants from in the hills, the cities, as being the best kaiju represented in prose, mm. not in movies. I mean, you're up against mm-hmm. Cloverfield and a bunch of other stuff, but like, as far as like, like, what's a better kaiju novel? Mm. I, I, I can't, I can't even begin. Right. You know what I mean, even even the the terrible film adaptation I read of King Kong, when I was a kid, it was particularly bad. Right. But um, you know, uh, I mean, it's it's. That's exceptional. Yeah. That's to, to do something like that, to kind of own that little corner of the world of horror. Mm. Yeah. You know? yeah. Surprising. So, Brendan, any yeah. particular other 
you know, sort of tying thoughts tying together this this uh, this volume here that we've just read? You know, I feel like the I, I know I keep going on and on about it, but I keep you know the the poetry of this, the po- poetry in the service of horror, is um, so fantastic. I want to. Okay, I'm going to read, uh, there's a part I highlighted here, it's like po- food horror poetry from the Midnight on the mean, meat, midnight meat Train section here, okay? Um, he is uh, describing um, seeing the, um, the slaughterhouse for the first time, you know? Um, and, and talking about the smell and the experience of it all. He says, it filled every one of his senses, the smell of opened entrails, the sight of the bodies, the feel of fluid on the floor under his fingers, the sound of the straps creaking beneath the weight of the corpses, even the air tasting salty with blood. He was with death absolutely in that cubbyhole hurtling through the dark. Like there's onomatopoeia throughout all of those. He repeats the S syllables in um, the sound of the straps creaking beneath the weight of the corpses. He um, uses the F for the feel, the fluid on the floor under his fingers, you know. And then the E kind of sound, the S sound is the smell of open entrails. Like that's, you know, like I I feel like most horror writers just don't bother to, to, to really put that much emphasis into the prose and I, I wonder if it's because he started off writing plays and that the musicality of the language it was meant to be heard right essential yeah. was meant to be heard yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it certainly is where it's coming from as a writer yeah. and it just it thrills me that you know I, I love high art in the service of monsters and gore and filth and stuff that's why all of us who love horror movies all of us who love horror literature I think loves that and to see someone really you know, be that musical with a description of something so horrific. It's, I find that I find it moving, mm-hmm. really moving. And one thing I also really liked about that story was the way that the character of Mahogany, who is the butcher, the the night butcher, um, the way that he was originally um, expressed to us or described to us, we don't really know what his deal is. We don't know is he some kind of a son of Sam person walking around delusions of grandeur. Is he actually in service of something greater? And there's this great um, part that I also highlighted here that I love that says he had deadlines to meet, of course, like the people in the street, but his work was not their senseless labor. It was more like a sacred duty. He needed to live and sleep and shit like them too, but it was not financial necessity that drove him, but the demands of history. He was in a great tradition that stretched further back than America. He was a night stalker like Jack the Ripper, a living embodiment of death, a wraith with a human face. He was a haunter of sleep and an awakener of terrors. The people below him could not know his face, nor would care to look twice at him. And I felt like this, I feel like Clyde Barker did such a great job of embodying that kind of delusions of grandeur that people who who are stalking people um, and with, with plans to kill them, um, I would imagine have. And I, it felt, and this is a weird word to use, it felt relatable. And, and when I say that, it felt relatable in the sense of if I were somebody who had a desire to go out and kill people and I had delusions of grandeur as well, I feel like these would be the kind of thoughts that would be running through that person's head. Yeah, that God complex kind of. And, and yeah. Like you're sanctifying, mm-hmm. this horrible thing that you're doing to them is actually sanctifying them. Right, which is <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
Yeah, I was really buying into the believability of the narrative that this person was telling himself, whether or not he really literally was in sure. service to something or not. I was buying it either mm -hmm. way. Yeah. yeah. That's a, it's it's a it's a, a truly wonderfully horrific story, right. and I think this whole collection is. And uh, uh, you know, I, I recommend it highly. I mean, this is, you know, I, I feel like it's you know not too much to say. You know, Clive Barker's entrance into the marketplace was the beginning of a new era of horror. Mm -hmm. I think, sure. you know? yeah. and I, I think uh, he's absolutely advanced the form. So, Brendan, any final thoughts about Books of Blood that you want to share with us? Well, just that I, you know, I, I've always, I've been a Clive Barker fan for a long time. Uh, my, my first one too, like Hoy was uh, the Great and Secret Show. Well, I don't know if that was your first one. That was the one. Yeah, that was well, the first one I ever, uh, I ever read, and uh, I, I was sucked into that. And uh, you know, I went on a big Clive Barker like tear in the early days, and then uh, again, when once Jeff, once once you told me you, you know, want to be on the show, I was like, oh, and like. Took that as an excuse to go back and reread a lot of oh God, Barker. Um, <laughs> nice. But, um, um, it's, 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 you know what? This this year this year has been for rereading. Um, mm. Frankly, with my new eyes. Um, but um, just I, I I hope that people will go back to all of these. I hope people won't be satisfied in saying, "Well, I saw the movie Midnight Be Train, so I'm good." Right. You're not good. Nope. Read read the story. It's fantastic. And uh, also that movie sucks. <laughs> don't get. Uh, I wasn't. Gonna, I was trying to not. <laughs> it was disappointing. It was very disappointing. You know what I'm saying? Like and um, there you go. And where's my Yattering and Jack movie? Come on now. You gotta be. Maybe we could do that. Yeah. That seems like a. Uh, I mean, supposedly this Hulu thing is an anthology, right? That should work. I mean, it's yeah. a small enough thing that it could work, like in a you know a 50, 50 minute episode of a of uh, yeah. like an anthology series or something like that. Yeah. You know what I want for the for the Yattering? I want uh, Kevin Hart. Sure. That would work. <laughs> I mean, I, you know what I mean? Just have it, just like, just going berserk, like just losing it, you know? I think it'd be great. How about Melissa McCarthy? Oh, she's so funny. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Her as a demon, I can see that. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. She's hilarious. Too. I wonder who I would use as a uh, Jack, though. Uh, John, Young John Goodman, maybe? I don't know. He's a, he, oh, that's not bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, kind hmm. of a... Yeah, someone kind of very yeah, matter-of-fact. Just, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, hmm. Somebody, yeah, like Leslie Nielsen back in his sure. well, you know, alive days. But you know what I'm saying? Like, with that kind of like straight face, right. like damn dogs. Yeah, right. You know what right. I mean? While the while it all gets yeah. torn up on. Yep. Nice beaver. Um, <laughs> exactly, right? But yeah, I, if, uh, if you're checking this out and um, you, if you haven't, I, I think that um, Clive Barker's canon is absolutely worthy of your time and attention. And if you love horror literature, I think that this is something you absolutely don't want to miss. There you go. So, Brendan, what projects that you uh, have coming up that you want people to know about? Okay, well, um, the the we're 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 by the time this comes out, we will either just or be ready or in the middle of kickstarting um, X Crawl Classics. So, I've been um, I've been you know writing X Crawl uh, you know one version or another. Been the first book came out in two thousand two, so this is actually next year is actually the twentieth anniversary, wow. which is mind blowing to me. Um, yeah. so I've got that, uh, that's kind of like my main thing that I've been working, been working on it for, for several years. It's, uh, originally X crawl came out. It was written for the 3.0 Dungeons and Dragons rules. And then there was a Pathfinder version. There was a lost version with my own rule set that, you know, never got published. And hopefully now I, I really think after all this, I think that the X crawl classics version is far and away my best version of it yet. And, um, you know, if, if you're into 
the you know uh, the brightest weirdest dystopia that you're going to come across in role playing games you know um yeah it's a you know live on pay per view death fort that uh, has uh, you know soda soda pop ads and uh, you know uh, come try it out there you go and if people want to find you on the internet or on social media what's the best way to do that uh, I am uh, Brendan underscore LaSalle on um, Twitter. And um, I, I'm also uh, Xcrawl on Twitter, just at Xcrawl. And I think that's pretty much all of I'm on Instagram too, but it's just cat pictures. So if, sure. you, if you really get it, <laughs> if you would like to see some pictures of my cats, which I can't recommend enough, right. um, uh, just Brendan underscore LaSalle at Instagram. Right. Um, yeah. I, I sometimes show food pictures in there right. too. I like to what about Trochio pictures? Oh my God, Trochio! Oh, she's right. here. Yeah, right. Trochio pictures. You know, right. dog pictures. And of course, Brendan is the host of Blades Against Bandwidth, which is on Twitch and YouTube. Uh, if you are not lucky enough to catch a Brendan at a con or uh, other uh, live gaming environment, hopefully that will be uh, when this historical moment passes. We'll be able to do that again. And so, <laughs> the, yeah, look back, come look, find me at a table, y'all. Yeah, look out for that. Um, so I just want to let you know that we have some candidates for as an epi- which episode would that be Jeff the one that we're coming up for 114 114 holy smokes alright so for 114 the theme of uh, my selections is secret histories so uh, the first uh, choice option is Mary Gentles Ash a secret history now that's a really really long novel so we're specifically talking about the, the book that's called a secret history but in the British collected versions it's just uh, all four novels in one so, a, a Secret History. Uh, Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's From Hell graphic novel about Jack the Ripper. Uh, Tim Powers' Declare, which is the sort of secret history of the Middle East with uh, genies, the Cold War, the, the Cambridge spy ring. And Theodore Rosak's Flicker, which is the uh, occult history of cinema. So, those are four possible options for episode 114. So uh, if you're a patron, you are certainly welcome to vote on those episodes, uh, those uh, books for our next episode. Uh, yes, absolutely. So those are the options for episode 114. The votes are in for episodes 111 and 112. The winner of 111 is Glenn Cook's, Glenn Cook's The Black Company. And the episode, the winner for number 112 is William Hope's Hodgson's, William Hope Hodgson's The House on the Borderland. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also like to give a shout out to our patrons who joined us for the patron book club today. Thank you to Rick Byrne, Jeremy Harper, and Adam Stiers for joining us. And speaking of Rick Byrne, thank you to Rick Byrne for designing our gorgeous new logo. Mm -hmm. The logo is amazing. And Rick Byrne did this for us. Phenomenal graphic designer. If you're looking to get some graphic design work done, look up Rick Byrne. You can find him at Behance. B-E-H-A-N-C-E dot net slash Rick Byrne. That's R-I-C-K-B-Y-R-N-E. Check him out. The new logo is gorgeous. Um, also, I'd like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons, Robert Poynton, Sean P. Kelly, Vixter, Lucio Nothlich pimentel Angelo Chiriaco, Matt Richards, Matt Hildebrand, Harvey Gillet, Kurt Hockenberry, and Dave Hotstream. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you. And... Yes. And our next two episodes will be 105 is going to be G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare. And episode 106 will be C.L. Moore's Jarrell of Jouari. So very exciting stuff coming up. Super exciting. Now, for a very brief, somber moment, I would like to dedicate this episode to my good friend, James, who passed away very recently. 
Uh, he was a listener to the show. He was a lifelong reader and lover of fantastic and heroic fiction, specifically Michael Moorcock, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and uh, Robert E. Howard, among others. Um, James, you'll be missed. Godspeed. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that. All right. So uh, if you want to find us, please uh, get in touch with us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or at, at appendix underscore n. And Brendan, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been an absolute joy having you here. Thank you. An honor and a pleasure. Bring me back anytime, especially talk about Black Company. Uh, oh, my God. Black Company. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you also have joined the book club then. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So much fun talking to you, Brendan, every time I see you. Thanks. All right. Great talking to you, too. All right. All right, everybody. See you in the sacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>